Welcome to the Modern Art Notes Podcast. I'm Tyler Green. Happy Thanksgiving weekend. With the holiday weekend, we'll be airing a conversation I taped with artist Gary Simmons in summer of 2017. Simmons' newest installation is still on view at the California African American Museum in Los Angeles. Titled Gary Simmons, Fade to Black, it's a multi-wall installation in the museum's atrium. The presentation was curated by Nama J. Keith, and it'll remain on view through December 31st, 2019. Yes, it's been extended. Simmons is also included in a collection installation titled I Am You, You Are Too, at the Walker Arts Center in Minneapolis. Over the course of a quarter-century-long career, Simmons has explored how to make the typically invisible visible, often within the context of America's troubled history. In 2002, the Museum of Contemporary Art Chicago debuted a mid-career survey of Simmons' work that traveled to site Santa Fe and the Studio Museum in Harlem. Seems like it's time for another one of those. Simmons has also been featured in solo shows at the Whitney Museum of American Art, Mass Mocha, the Philadelphia Museum of Art, the St. Louis Art Museum, MCASD, the Modern Art Museum of Fort Worth, the Drawing Center in New York, and plenty more. Gary Simmons, after the break. The Guggenheim Museum in New York rewrites art history this fall with the first major U.S. exhibition of groundbreaking Swedish artist Hilma Off Klint. Discover this little-known pioneer of abstraction through more than 165 of her bold and radical paintings and works on paper, described by New York Magazine as, quote, some of the most beguilingly uncanny and imaginative works of the last century. Also on view, a new body of paintings created by contemporary artist R.H. Quaitman, inspired by Off Klint. Plan your visit to this exploration of radical abstraction, two artists, one century apart, at Guggenheim.org. Support for the Man Podcast comes from the Pulitzer Arts Foundation, a museum that believes in the power of direct experiences with art. This fall, the Pulitzer presents Ruth Asawa, Life's Work, a career-spanning exhibition focused on Ruth Asawa's evolving artistic practice and ceaseless experimentation with wire. Bringing together more than 60 sculptures, including looped wire, tied wire, electroplated, and cast works, as well as several drawings and collages dating back to her formative years at Black Mountain College, this exhibition sheds light on Asawa's highly distinctive vision, which she achieved with a stunning deftness of hand and economy of means. Ruth Asawa Life's Work is on view through February 16th, 2019. For more information, visit pulitzerarts.org. And we're back. Gary Simmons, welcome back to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thanks, Tyler. It's great to be back. For years now, you've been making work about objects or ideas that are partially erased from popular culture. So making the invisible visible, but in a way that reference its fadedness. The words in the lobby walls at CAM, which is a, 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 a great but also challenging space that it's really exciting to see them activate, are, are, are phrases such as moon over Harlem and midnight shadow and freckles come home and many more. What do the words or phrases reference? Fade to Black is the title of, the, of that project, and all the phrases are really titles of early Hollywood film productions that were mostly, if not all, African-American actors and actresses from the silent and early talkie era. So they... All you know, it's not all of the titles, but it's a selection of titles, I should say it that way. So why why these films and in some cases songs and of course I think at least one of them is both a song and a film title. 
why 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 these what got you interested in them these these specific films well you know film has always been a really kind of place that i start when i start a project i sort of mine through a lot of film references and things like that i think since the early days of doing the wall drawings even the, the scale all the wall drawings are usually scaled to the kind of silver screen you mean the ratio as well as the size yeah yeah, and just that kind of cinematic effect of the the sort of rectangular box that the screen represents. And when I walked into the cam lobby, uh, you know, I really sat with that space for a long time because it's got its own challenges. I think that, you know, the, the architecture is from a period that... <laughs> you know, was, was difficult. I mean, the, the ceiling alone is, is on a curve towards the front entrance of the, of the space. So it, it has this sort of presence that needed to be studied. So I sat in the lobby for a, a long time, you know, and watched the way people moved through the space from room to room and show to show and, and how they hung out and lingered and things like that and, and really watched behaviors of how people were moving. And it seemed to me that the walls had this way of almost like growing out of the ground. They, they sort of stepped up very much like a, like a, you know, a wedding cake kind of thing. And it had this feeling of motion and the move, the movement of bodies going through the space side to side and these walls going up and down, it had this kind of film reel effect on me. And so it kind of started there. And then there's, you know, there's sort of five sections in the lobby. They're separated by these concrete columns. So it felt very much like strips of film. And I like the idea of creating a sort of credit roll, either at the beginning or the end of a film where you're looking and you know, you're seeing who's the DP on a project, who's the director, who's the you know best boy, things like that. And it sort of came from there. So at that point, it, it became, it, it sort of grew for me conceptually what this project was going to take on. And, and I knew I really wanted to work with actors and actresses that have kind of disappeared into history that were part of the forming of early Hollywood that, you know, as we know it now. So people like Hattie McDaniels, who, you know, was a very early Academy Award winner, actually. But when you think of a film like Gone with the Wind, you're, you're thinking of the main characters and then, you know, she's sort of disappeared into the background. So I really wanted to kind of bring them to the surface again and, you know, deal with the kind of not really disappearance, but definitely the blurring of them into history. Do you want people to recognize that these have to be film titles, you know, that people may not know immediately what they reference, especially, say, younger people, but that perhaps not knowing what they are will motivate them to find out? Are you kind of hoping it launches people's own dives into a certain history? Yeah, I think it's more the latter. I think that I think film and film history, very much like visual art history, is, is one that, you know, sometimes you stumble on an image or, or a film that you may or may not know and you become curious about, maybe through title or, or otherwise, and maybe you seek some of those things out. I think that there's a kind of two-edged sword to the way that the titles have references to current 
political climate. I think that there's a kind of playful poetry with, with the title and how they sit next to each other. There is no specificity to why this one sits next to that one. I, I tend to like to present that the work in that way and then you know, leave an avenue for your viewers to sort of try to piece those together in their own terms. You know, I think it's important for a viewer to kind of move around in their own experience and not become like this myopic sort of dogmatic viewpoint of, of statement. That's not really something that I'm interested in. I'm more interested in, you know, getting people to a location and then they kind of, it unfolds for them in their own experience. You did a Q&A with Oakley and Wazor a few years back in which you said that you often use film as the basis for drawings. And you suggested to him that sometimes specific parts of specific films or specific techniques in specific films were jumping off points for specific artworks. And I wonder if there is such a specific relationship here. On this particular one, no. I think that I think it's a more generalized, you know, I think that different people go to the cinema for different reasons and i think when you're interested on a level of how this film was put together or or who's credited with what you know those folks tend to either stay till the end i'm one of those <laughs> and other folks just look past it and they'll get up and leave or they'll say all oh, the credits are rolling films over pack up and leave i'm very interested in 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 how a film looks and how who's the dp on a project you know somebody like Frederico Prieto is a is a DP that I really love I'm friends with Arthur Jaffa and, and you know AJ and I have worked on projects together where he invited me into to be an art director or, or assist in some way visually on some things so the behind the camera part has always been a very interesting place for me in how uh, film is put together, how something is made to look, how you can bring out emotion or really awe in through the screen and through editing, through camera angles and things like that, coloration. I think those are the things that really go into how I approach an, an erasure drawing. You know, the speed or the motion in something has a relationship to, you know, I can look at a film, I'm obsessed with films like Bullet, you know, the Steve McQueen car chase movie, and the way that those sh shots are, are constructed, or the seven ups from the early, you know, like a lot of those early 70s car chase movies are, are have the action where cars and, and figures are moving through a static screen. It's not as much of a, a you know, it may not be a panning situation or they'll zoom in and out in certain places to heighten the activity. So, you know, we're sailing a horror movie where they'll slow down for, for a dramatic effect and then pull back to create this kind of immediate shock in the, in the frame. So those things are kinds of areas that, that, that kind of influence how I'll think about the way an image Although I'm working two-dimensional and, and, and it's static, I try to create that kind of movement within the, the wall drawings themselves. So those are other areas that I'm also, in addition to the conceptual end, the physicality of the way film is constructed are, are also parts of what goes into it. Well, speaking of that physicality, I had never seen 
a video of you or, or seen you in person making an erasure drawing until the LA Times made one or published one of you working at CAM. We'll either embed it at, at manpodcast.com or link to it. So I don't know if if you played up for the camera or not, but the video really emphasizes the physicality of the labor required to make these pieces, especially because of their enormity. So is physical labor part of the conceptual underpinning of both these works and the technique you use to make them? Absolutely. I think it's funny, just as a side note, that, you know, for years and years, I never allowed cameras into me doing the wall drawings because it, in a lot of ways, it's it's just something that uh, I've always been very private about. And, and I think that the drawings end up being the kind of residue or um, what you see from a performance that you never see. So this was one of the first times that I've ever actually allowed camera in, in there. And the response has been amazing that people are fascinated by how those are put together. But for, you know, 20 plus years, I've never really allowed that. I think maybe once there was some film called Art City or something like that, that, uh, that I allowed somebody to watch me do a drawing. But yeah, I mean, I think that the labor and is, is very much a part of it. You know, I think that it's, they can be emotional for me as well. It's not just a means to an end. I think that sometimes the subject matter that I choose becomes a very personal experience and, and you're, you're, I'm really working to obliterate that image or be hands on literally to, to try to erase it. And that there's a kind of, there's a kind of beauty in that for me of trying desperately to erase this stereotype that um, will never go away. And it's not completely futile. And I think that in certain cases, you don't want the image completely obliterated. But when it comes to ideas about the way memory is fragmented and the way we move further and further away from an experience, I think that what we end up doing is trying to somehow piece together the actual experience and what's become kind of abstracted. And that's kind of where the drawings exist. So there is a lot of labor that goes into them. I want to go art history nerd for a moment. When I see words and text used in visual art to establish or refer to an historical lineage that continues right through the artwork that that artist is making, I think of Cy Twombly. And I know that Twombly has been important to you for a long time. But I don't know when you first saw his work or when you first started thinking through his work. And I wonder if you do. Twombly comes into play all the time. Did he early or was that later? Yeah, I think I think from from even art school. I mean, I responded most immediately to Twombly. I I like the immediacy of of some of those gestures. I mean, I think for me, when I started early art making, I think that that sense of I've always been drawn to drawing. I've always been drawn to drawing. I think that um, for me, if I could collect, I would collect artists' drawings. I think that there's something kind of pure about mark making with drawing that you're you're not as mannered when you are drawing. If 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 you ask somebody to draw you a map to get to a shop somewhere, the first response that they have is usually to draw you a little map. I guess now currently you 
tell them their address and <laughs> their GPS. <laughs> but those this is the oldest. This is the oldest I've felt in weeks. Exactly. <laughs> you know, probably I would draw a little drawing for you and say, "Hey, you take this. You know, make a left, go here, and you'll see the gas station on the left." You know, and I think that there's a casualness, and you're at your most vulnerable, and you're you're willing to leave mistakes and things that were unintended in a drawing. And I think that there's a, a kind of purity to the way that Twombly would do some of those. Those were not, they never seemed very planned out. They seemed very uh, responsive to the canvas and that kind of thing. And, and I think both his drawings, even his sculpture, which is a lot more, you know, isn't as well known. I think there's a sort of spontaneity to him that I responded to early on. So Twombly always plays a place for me. I think if I was going to start to collect, I'd probably start with the side Twombly and move from. I think that Richter's, some of Richter's sort of drag paintings that he does have the same thing where there's a kind of accident that's left behind, that kind of mark making. When you see how he makes them with the squeegees and he's pulling paint across, yes, they're figured out in a certain kind of color palette, but he tends to leave in marks that may or may not have been intended. And for me, I think that those are the things that I really respond to the most. And, you know, even teaching my daughter drawing, I'll say, listen, you can either make a drawing with your eraser. In other words, removing the material from the, from the paper. But if you're going to really get into mark making, leave those mistakes in there, work with your mistakes. I think that, some of the best things happen out of things that you didn't intend. And that kind of response is more prevalent in drawing than I say with, with painting. Not all of it, of course. I think that you know, a lot of the Abex guys responded that way as well. But I think that there's a, a much more considered history that you have to address when you're making, when you're making a painting than, say, a drawing. How old is your daughter? She's 11. So you're, you're very much a CalArts dad. Oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> you went to CalArts. I, I, maybe, I, maybe, I, maybe I said that sooner. One of the funniest stories with my daughter, I'll tell you really quick, was it was very early on. I think she was in maybe kindergarten or something, and she had a, a picture of a horse or something. She said, Dad, you know, my, my teacher said that, uh, you know, this is a horse and we need to do a drawing of it. I said, well, Lily you know that that's, that's a representation of a horse. And so we had this conversation about what representation was. And so she went back to class and, and teacher put up the image. And she said, Mrs. So-and-so, she said, that's actually a representation of a horse, not really a horse. <laughs> and the teacher's mind was blown right there. So it starts early. You, know, you mentioned Gerhard Richter's Blurred paintings, and I think you were talking about the ones from the, the late 80s. But for me, and, and I'm glad you brought them up because I wanted to ask about Richter, because for me, the most significant and impactful and door-opening artworks of the post-war era are Richter's mid-60s blurred paintings that reference history, its slipperiness, personal and familial responsibility for the past. And in Germany's case, it was the immediate recent horror and terror and, and killing all within a, a pictorial language that uses technique, so partial erasure, the erasure of fidelity, as a metaphor for the con 
conceptual underpinning. It's this very recursive thing in those those Richters from the 60s. Were those blurs? I mean, given that you're dealing with some of the same questions of of, of history, was Richter's blur from the 1960s important or of interest to you? Or did you come to the blur through his works of the 80s or from someone else altogether? I think those 60s paintings had a big impact on me. I think that um, early on when I was starting to make work, I was really influenced by Jack Whitten. And Jack was... And I think you took classes with Jack. Yeah, I studied with Jack and he was he was a kind of mentor at School of Visual Arts. And Jack actually pushed me towards coming out to the West Coast in a big way. He said, you know, conceptually, you're closer to a lot of the guys that are doing things out there. And at the time, I didn't really understand that, what he was getting at. I thought he was driving me away from <laughs> New York. And I was born in New York. So it was sort of, uh, I said, what are you talking about? And, and when I got here, I understood what more clearly what he was saying. And, and so I think Jack and looking at some of Jack's paintings had a similar impact as well. But the Richter paintings were particularly of interest for me because I think that he was dealing with a certain kind of history, like you said. And for me... I was studying at the time with a lot of uh, minimalists. I was looking at a lot of the 60s boys, the, you know, the Robert Morrises, the Shapiro little houses. I was looking at, you know, a lot of Michael Asher and, you know, conceptual work, Doug Hubler, Baldessari, people like that. And I think that blend of, of minimalism and, and conceptualism for me was the foundation of things. But for me, what was troubling was that I couldn't find my my own personal experience through some of those work. That reduction in image needed to be a little more personal. And so that's where I think some of the politics sort of entered it for me. And I think that I aligned myself with some of the ideas that, that Richter was already, you know, kind of charting out. His in a different territory, obviously, but I think the application and the blurring had similarities. And once I discovered that, I really got into the way that Richter, you know, it was for me, it was more Richter than it was Polka. And it's almost like you had to make a decision between who you camped out with. And Richter had a politic that was sort of very powerful. But at the same time, he dealt with beauty in a way that I felt very much drawn to. So there's a way of, of trying to deal with politics without becoming uh, I like to say, you know, I'll, I can get more out of a conversation with somebody than I can with getting on a soapbox and screaming at them. So the way that he embedded politics into those paintings was something that I was after myself. So I, I would say that probably those 60s paintings came first. And then, you know, the way that he moved to the 80s paintings and those those beautiful, you know, color field drags, those were heavy influences for me. So speaking of Jack Witten, as you as you mentioned, you took classes with Witten at SVA. Witten made his own blurred paintings with a, a tool he didn't call a squeegee, but but that he called a developer. Were Witten's blurs important to you in any specific way, either in the physicality of them or in the the way they were made, or the continuation of the Richter tradition, or something, or, or a different address of the Richter tradition? Maybe is a better way of putting it. Or, or some other way? You know, I think Jack Jack had an influence on me in myriad reasons and places. I think that he guided me towards artists that I wasn't aware of. And 
the way that the removal of his hand from the paint and the performative aspect of it, the way he constructed those tools to, to get this end result. I think that Jack also made me very much aware of being an artist of color at a time where they weren't looked to in the same way as we are now. And, and you know, he aware, made me aware of the challenges and, and certain works that were going on that as a young student, I just didn't know. And, and uh, you know, people like David Hammonds or, you know, Adrian Piper. And those were really important artists for me to understand moving forward that there was this history. And, and then purely, on, I, I was really drawn to the way that he developed that tool and created it. And it was very specific to remove his hand from it. And just structurally, I think that Jack was a really interesting person to work with uh, and now become friends with. You know, I, I look to Jack and talk to Jack all the time. And he's just, he's a brilliant artist. And, he, you know, he'd been working with that type of work for a very, very long time. And I would probably say that Richter might potentially have been looking at, at, at Jack's work when he started the first in the 80s. I know Jack thinks so. <laughs> I know Jack thinks so. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I would probably, I don't think that's an accident. I think that, I think, you know, great work comes out of looking at someone else's work too. You know, it, you're not going to wake up one morning and, and, and just invent the new mark making. But I do think that, you know, it's important to recognize that there was this work before you and that you can take it somewhere else in your own terms. So, Jack made me kind of aware of that. And then, you know, I just think that the grace that he had at the time of, of recognizing that this guy is getting all this attention and in Jack's head, whether it's true or not, I think that he dealt with it in a very interesting way. He stayed on his path and he, you know, continued to make the work that he's making. And, you know, I think Jack's making some of the best work of his life. I've always thought that it's a really big difference between blurring a painting based on a photograph and blurring into complete and total abstraction. And it seems like, and still seems to me, that that Jack Witten's work must have been a crucial bridge between those two ideas. I mean, I think maybe we forget how hard, and maybe Richter's work is part of why, we forget how hard it is to get from representation to quote total abstraction and and his work I, it just seems to must have been really important at that moment my guest is gary simmons we'll be right back after a break bruce nauman disappearing acts is now on view at both the museum of modern art in manhattan and moma ps1 in queens Experience Nauman's command of a tremendous range of mediums, from drawing, photography, and sculpture, to performance, neon, film, and large-scale installations in a major retrospective of his 50-year career. Get more info and tickets at MoMA.org and plan your visit today. On Tuesday, December 4th at the Getty Center, Dr. Kelly Jones discusses the global reaches of performance art during the 1970s, focusing on projects by David Lamellis, Felipe Ehrenberg, Lords Grobe, Adrian Piper, and Senga Nanguti. Dr. Jones is Associate Professor in Art and Faculty Fellow with the Institute for Research in African American Studies at Columbia University. Get tickets and learn more about this free event at getty.edu 360. 
And now back to my conversation with Gary Simmons. There's a story in the interview you did with Franklin Sermons in the catalog for your MCA Chicago Studio Museum survey about how you started to do the erasure drawings in a studio in New York that was a rat-infested place within a sweatshop. And there was something about newspapers, and I didn't totally follow the story, and Franklin Sermons didn't dwell on it or, or nail you down on it. Can you describe that moment a bit and how it got you to the blur, how that kind of what, what puts that whole thing together? That's actually the coming together of two separate stories. I think that early on, I was working in a vocational school in Midtown and an old vocational school. It was converted into studios and I assisted in, you know, framing it out for artists and stuff. And, and part of the agreement was, was that I was going to have studio space for myself. So, and those studios became the studios that I think Hunter College uses now. But at the time, all the chalkboards in this old school was, was, was placed in what became my studio. So for me to work on one wall, I'd have to move all of these chalkboards off of that wall onto the, the one across from it or, or wherever around the room. So I was constantly moving these, these chalkboards. At the same time, I was working with a friend on a film. We had this idea to kind of do this kind of documentary-esque thing. And it was, you know, and through doing this film, I was researching a lot of early sort of race cartoons. I was really, we were, the film was really around like education and children and how we learn and unlearn and things like that. The film never got made, but the research that was done, I started to find that the memory of these cartoons, the cartoons that were, were shown in between movies in the early 40s and 50s, mostly, you know, military or wartime cartoons, you know, it'd be like Bugs Bunny and it would be like this commentary on the war or it would be like Tex Avery and he's doing these little old Bosco cartoons, things like that. I started to discover that the memory of these cartoons were breaking down along lines of race. And I thought that was very fascinating that something like Dumbo, the Disney cartoon, would, you know, people of color would remember the crows and different people would remember that Dumbo was this big elephant and he had these big ears and he had to overcome them and this and that. But the crows teach Dumbo to fly. And I remembered as a kid identifying and thinking about those crows. So I started to ask people their recollection of those kinds of cartoons and, and this and that. And that's really where the cartoons entered the fray. Before that, I was really just doing these reduction minimalists, taking the chalkboards, cutting them up, you know, fragmenting them, and they would they were remained like these pure objects. And I, you know, would place like black chalk on the chalk rail. So there was the implication that if you attempted to write on these chalkboards, you wouldn't be able to to see or reveal what what you're trying to teach. So the cartoons. I basically, I did an exhibition in Cal, in LA and there was a dealer that wanted to show the work, but the chalkboards that I was making were so heavy that they, the costs of shipping them 
was so it was so expensive to ship the work that we couldn't we couldn't do those chalkboards but it was really important for me for the show to have those pieces in there so i came out i did the show i think this was at margot levin gallery right? uh it was at roy boyd gallery in santa Monica. Oh, oh, and so even earlier richard tayas was the director and richard was really supportive at the time and i love him dearly for doing that and richard just said well you know we got together and i said richard it's really important for me to do this piece and i said i think i want to do this and draw on the wall so I came out, and the piece was actually an, inst- an installation that incorporated a, 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 cockatoo, a live cockatoo bird. The bird was an actress. She was a Hollywood bird. And she sat on a, on a podium in front of this painted chalkboard surface. And as the bird would flap its wings, there was this incredible cinematic effect of the bird's wings against this you know, very stark back, black background. And I thought, wow, it looks like trails, almost like acid trails, you know. And I thought, that's an amazing effect. I have to somehow find that into my work. So I came back to New York and immediately started to put together the drawings and the chalkboards. And that was the sort of birth of the the erasure drawings for me. You know, I had already known about some of the things we talked about with Richter and, and and the tuning drawings and things like that. And I, for me, it all came together because it was about, it encompassed everything. It had race, it had cartoons, it had this movement, it had this physicality, it had, you know, everything kind of gelled together. And the erasure drawings were born. And that's where that really started. The rat infested thing was I had this studio, this really small studio in a sweatshop. That is true. And it was very tiny. I lived with my dog and... I had moved back from California after leaving uh, the West Coast. I guess that's the same. And I had nowhere to live, so I lived in my studio. I had just been hanging pictures for different galleries and museums to make ends meet. And I had been doing all the like hundreds of drawings and tacking them up on the wall. Simon Watson, I met at an opening, and Simon said, I'd really love to come by your studio sometime. I was sort of, so Simon Simon Watson was a, a gallery yeah, owner, a dealer. Simon ran uh, Baskerville Watson in the 80s, and then he branched off, and, and he did his own sort of Simon Watson gallery. A lot of people showed. So Simon had his thumb on a lot of different artists. Uh, Felix, you know, he, it was me, Felix Gonzalez, Therese, Donald Moffat. The names go on and on. It was he was he was amazing. Marlene McCarthy, there were, there were a lot of people that were working at the time. Anyway, I was sort of embarrassed to have Simon come by because I didn't want him to see my living conditions. And he came by and thought, oh, my God, this guy is like insane. All he does is do drawings. But I had all this time on my hands and I had all this space. So I just kept drawing and tacking them to the walls. And he said, listen, can I do you mind if I take like 10 of these and, you know, bring them to the gallery? And I said, sure, you know, and take as many as you like. And, and uh so he came back to me in a week and he said, listen, I, I sold all those drawings. Do you have any more? I was like, sure, let's keep going. And at the time, you know, those drawings were probably selling for, I don't know, maybe $200 a piece or something. But to me, that was like a fortune because I didn't have any money. And that kind of pulled me out of that situation. And the drawings became bigger because Simon said, we really need to find you a space so that you could, you know, stretch your wings and and do what you need to do and and so that's where everything sort of started was this sort of lucky set of events 
between being committed to doing the work and, you know, meeting up with somebody at the time that was super supportive. There are two more things I want to ask about. 16 years ago, you did a project, made a project called Ghost House. Could you quickly describe that project and explain why it was attractive to you? Ghost House, that's a great project. You know, I'd been working, expanding the drawings and, you know, a, a quick side note, I, I had the, I was fortunate enough to work with, with uh, Robert Irwin at a certain time. And Bob Irwin was, was really important to me as for a lot of different reasons. And this job came up, started working on this installation with Bob in New York and it was really a labor intensive project and, and we got to talking on the project and, and uh, he, he, I said, you know, Bob, what are we doing here? And he, he said, well, you know, we're, we're really creating like altering or changing the viewer's perception of this incredible vista. It was an outdoor piece. So we ended up lowering the earth about three feet and lining it with this Corten steel. So you literally entered this, this space in nature and had a different view of this incredible landscape. And he's like, you know, you can't really make anything huge and try to obstruct this. It's better to take that and alter the viewer's perception. So we got it. I was really interested in that. And I, I thought, wow, you know, how did you start on such a project? And he said, well, you know, I started early on as drawing and painting. And I see these as kinds of paintings. And I said, what the fuck? Like, what are you talking about? And he was, he was like, I started on a on an easel making paintings and that wasn't sufficient. So I got off the easel and I started making these large scale paintings and then they grew from there and the drawings became bigger and bigger and the, and the paintings became bigger and bigger. And soon enough, the landscape became the painting and my canvas that I was working with. So I was really blown away by the idea of constantly pushing the boundaries of, of drawing and painting. So I got to this place with the wall drawings that they got to the scale that I really wanted to actually take your kind of nuclear family house in the middle of the desert, something that's abandoned, something that's been left behind, that the object was equally as in a form of you know, deterioration as what the drawings represented, that there was this space between abstraction and, and representation. And so Louis Gracias was working at Site Santa Fe at the time. And Lewis was on board with, with the, the show that was moving around from MCA and Studio Museum and all of that. But Lewis said, listen, I have this opportunity for you to do this house out in the desert. So I jumped on it immediately. We jumped in the car. We drove out to Los Alamos, Las Vegas, New Mexico. And there was this town that was basically left behind. It was a ranch called Ruby Ranch. And there was a school. There was a general store. There were all these little houses that folks left behind on this incredibly large ranch. So I chose one of these houses and, and decided that I was going to do all these drawings on the interior of, of this house and then you know, sort of leave it there in the desert. Uh, uh on the walls. On the walls, to, yeah. To be clear, yeah. Yeah, on the interior of the walls. We had to patch up some of them, but for the most part, we kind of left it in that kind of state of disrepair. But it was a it was a fantastic project to work on, and just being in that kind of a landscape, it was you know perfectly flat in every direction, and you you know I was hoping to 
it became this place of destination. So people knew through the museum to kind of trek out there and go see the house. And I think that the landscape became part of the project as much as the house and the drawings were. And that for me was really important because it was the first time that I was able to actually use the architecture in its entirety as part of the dialogue within the work. So that's a real special project for me. You ended up anticipating my question because I was curious about what got you from kind of a, a school era influence in, in post-minimalist sculpture and, and with teachers who had that experience to actually doing something in the landscape. But it sounds like it was entirely through, through Bob Irwin. Yeah, I think it was. I think that, you know, in addition to studying with a lot of great folks, you know, I've been... I really look back now, having worked in the in making art for you know since late '80s. Really, I mean, I think my first show was in '88 at, at American Fine Art. But I've had some really great experiences, both with teachers and mentors, and the time of working. I mean, I'm working in in the mid '80s with people like Craig Owens and Douglas Crimp and Rosalind Krauss, and then having Michael Asher be you know, somebody that I look to, Baldessari, Witten, all those guys. And then additionally, I was fortunate enough to work as assistants on big projects like Bob Irwin's and, you know, giants in, in the field. Those were kind of the foundation for how I like kind of even conduct, conducted myself and the way you carry yourself and talk and, you know, the importance of ideas and conceptual framework into your work were all very important for them in creating the, the newer generation. And they were really giving of their time and, and patient in, cause you know, I didn't, when I was in a young kid in grade school, I didn't know about contemporary art or anything. I went to public school in New York and uh, we went to the museum, but I didn't know about, you know, contemporary art at all. Last thing I wanted to ask about ghost house. Did you have, either at the beginning of the project or did you come to have during the course of the project an interest in, in joining and engaging the American landscape tradition? Yes and no. I think that, yes, you can't not. If you're working in a, in a space like that, and I actually would love to go back and do other projects like it. I think that there's something really amazing about the American landscape. And I think that when you think I've driven across the country a number of times. And this recent trip, moving out here, my wife and I chose to drive across the country. And it was it was just amazing to see the country, you know, what people refer to as the flyover. But to really experience the country, I think you really have to get out and, and move around and, and meet different people and see different landscapes, the way that the transitions happen across the country from you know, the Rust Belt into the South, into, you know, the Southwest and into Los Angeles, even just California alone has an impact on you. I think there's a tradition there that is is very important. You can't ignore it. But do I try to embed myself into it? No, I think I probably use it more as a source for some of the politics. And I think it's a strength in that way. America's landscape tradition is a really white tradition. I think there are some ways in which there's some address of America's racial experience in the landscape that we don't usually think of there as being, such as at Yosemite. 
but did it matter to you or does it matter to you that that's mostly a white landscape, that America's landscape tradition is mostly a white tradition? Yeah, I think that it's something that you can use tool or a, or a reference point within the work, I think, to embed a, a work like Ghost House into the tradition of the American landscape and what that represents is in and of itself a kind of political gesture. So I think, you you know, I'm aware of it and it's something that you use as a kind of challenge and it's a it's a big project to address, but to embed a work like that that has that can be both part of it and critical of it at the same time for me is a very powerful sort of statement finally earlier in your career you made work that included ku klux klan material such as hoods in duck dunk noose in 1992 and related material such as rope as in noose flag from 1991 that's really loaded stuff obviously and eventually you moved away from 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 it and so far as I know, uh, and I could totally be wrong, it's been absent from your work for a long time. What was the attraction of using such direct symbols and artifacts when you started, and why did you decide to stop using them? You know, I think when you're a young artist, you have a tendency to want to make big statements. You don't know if you're going to get another opportunity to to take on, you know, to another opportunity again. So you're going to make these big, bold, brash statements. And I think the the most direct icon of hate, segregation, racism at all, you know, I think would be the Klan and what they represent, you know, both as an icon of fear, an icon of hatred, you know, American history, and the kind of hidden aspect, the literal hiddenness of these guys that are hiding behind, you know, these sheets and, and robes and, and hoods and that they're, you know, they're everywhere. I think that the Klan has been, it's not as if they go, they've gone away. You know, I think people tend to, his, you know, place them into history, but I think the Klan has, has morphed into a lot of, you know, the current hate speech that's around now. And they become more sophisticated, and they're not hiding behind hoods, and they're they're, you know, embedding themselves in discourse and dialogue that goes along now. And and I think that you know you even have, you know, the things like Breitbart and and Infowars, and you know there's a there's a platform for that kind of hate speech that is there. It's it's something that there's a, I think as a as an image, as a symbol, as an icon. Those forms of the uh, the hoods and the robes represent that, and I think that for me, I was pushing a lot of that and trying to stitch together the notion of minimalism and what you know just the simple forms of the hats. Like I did another piece called Big Dunce, which was a wooden stool sitting in the corner and this sort of minimalist. It was a seven foot felt hat that had this dual meaning to it. You know, in one way, it looked kind of like a clan hood pointy hat. And at the same time, it had references to minimalism and some of the things that were going on with, you know, and the material, you know, you think about felt and the cone form. So there was a kind of merging or bringing together uh, and commentary that I was trying to make early on 
that there is no inclusiveness, there is no dialogue, there is no <laughs> welcoming of a young artist such as myself into that kind of, of art history. I think as you move forward and develop and start to create your own sort of visual vocabulary as an artist, your sort of terrain gets wider and the, the conversation, I, I think the traveling at a certain time, as I was invited to Europe and other places, you started to realize that my work was starting to get pushed into one dialogue of an American experience, the black American experience. And for me, it was an eye opener because I thought, oh, I'm trying to make a commentary that's a little more, a little wider, that this is a universal kind of problem. You look at some of the problems that happen in Europe and, and, and other parts of the world, they're equally as problematic as what we have, have going on here now. So I think that the dialogue and the interests and the imagery that I started to use started to open up to create avenues for other forms of access for people's experience within the work. And I wouldn't say that it, I totally divorced myself from that kind of direct politic, I think it became more embedded. I think it became almost like an onion. It was more layered. So it became for me just the actual use of reference to the chalkboard had early references back to some of where those chalkboard drawings came from. So it was freeing in a way that if I was to use something, an image, say like a, uh, a gazebo, there just by the history of my work and the idea of erasure, it became part of the history of what I was talking about. And that was very freeing. So I think that those issues are still there. I just don't think that the direct shock value of some of those are as prevalent. You know, I think something like, say, like Fade to Black, just the idea that I use some of those films that have now drifted in and out of history, some of those had very intense critiques about how black figures were used historically. And, uh, you know, I think people, their own opinions about what black actresses and, and actors, their accountability of, of choices that they made, but they really didn't have choices. If they were going to work in Hollywood, these were the opportunities that they had. So they moved forward and created these characters that are now historicized. And so it, you can't erase them out of history. I think that you you have to recognize them so the ideas are still there i just don't think that the the uh the volume is as turned up as it was early on let me correct something i said earlier i think i suggested that you were using actual clan hoods that were artifacts whereas what you were doing was remaking objects derived from the form True. yeah and let me just follow up on on your answer because I'm curious about one thing you said in terms of how the racism that was once, you know, the specific racism that was once masked by the clan hoods, both literally, I guess more literally than metaphorically, has come out into the open on, on, on Breitbart and, you know, that, that infamous black crime tab at the top of the page, Infowars and such. Were you suggesting that one of the reasons you haven't returned to clan and rope forms is because the racism itself is that much more out in the open and mainstreamed by the right? I don't think I was suggesting that I don't use it. I think that what I was trying to say is that I think that it's not, you know, somebody asked me recently because of all the uh, sort of 
crimes against young black men going on, uh, what my opinions were on it. And I said, well, you know, these crimes have not been, this, this isn't new. This isn't a new thing. <laughs> you know, we've been dealing with this for years and years and years. We just didn't have the use of technology. What's, what's different is, is now you have iPhones and, and other forms of tech that can record these things. But, you know, Eleanor Bumpers and, and Michael Stewart and, and Yusuf Hawkins and all those, those guys were, were getting brutalized and, and beaten to death in the 80s. And, and you can go all the way back to Emmett Till. And, you know, and this is a constant ongoing thing. It's not new. It's just the tech has changed. And I think that in, in regard to the race thing, I think that the Klan has gone from like burning crosses and things and hiding behind masks to unmasking themselves and being right out in the open. You know, if you listen to things that happen at Trump rallies, the the division and divisiveness of, of speech and language, that's one of the things that's so powerful about language and using text. I think it, it has in some ways more painful historical ramifications than than, than the immediate physical violence these these kinds of 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 websites and things Im- embed that way of thinking into you know minds that may or may not or are vulnerable so you know if you're driving to work and listening to you know some rush limbaugh or infowars thing that's that's sort of seeding itself into your mindset and so it, it's it's almost like a virus that spreads and i think that the tech has really moved that hate speech forward. And it's, it's really super dangerous. How it would fit into the art practice, I, I, can't really, I can't really tell. But things like Breitbart are incredibly dangerous. And for me, it, it, it's just one of those things that you're seeing like just spreading like this, this horrible virus. You know, I just listened to the president speak yesterday to a bunch of boy scouts. Now these are like teenagers and he's embedding certain kinds of language into his speech that yeah, it was explicit white nationalist. language. Exactly. And you know, how, you know how these 12 year olds are going to like take that information and move forward. They're impressionable. And so it's not an accident. I don't think that Trump is an idiot. I, I might not agree with what he's saying. I don't agree with what he's saying, but he and Bannon and all the rest of them are embedding that kind of language into his speech with the intent of spreading that message. So, you know, I, I think it's, uh, it's, a, it's a very dangerous moment. Gary Simmons, thanks very much. Thanks so much, Tyler. I always enjoy talking. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.